This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Marty Barron's career almost reads like a Hollywood script. The former newspaper executive has overseen editorial coverage for some of the nation's largest newspapers, first as an editor at the Miami Herald during the 2000 presidential election recount, which hinged on results from Florida, to the Boston Globe during the Catholic Church sex scandal, which was dramatized in the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight. Barron's new book focuses on what he calls the home stretch of his career as the executive editor of The Washington Post. He began just a few months before Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon and one of the richest men in the world, purchased the Post from the Graham family, which had owned it for eight decades. During his tenure, Barron led coverage of major news events and investigations like the National Security Administration document leak, the presidential election of Donald Trump, and his presidency two impeachment trials, the Me Too movement, the January 6th insurrection, and the pandemic. Barron chronicles all of this in a new book called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. He began writing it after retiring in 2021, and the opening starts with a highly unusual meeting for a news boss, a private dinner at the White House in 2017 that included Barron, Bezos, and then-President Donald Trump. That dinner, Barron says, set the stage for what would follow for Trump's interaction with the Post, from courtship to condemnation and back again. Marty Barron, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Tanya. Let's talk about your book, where you start with that dinner at the White House. And during that gathering, you write that then-President Trump ticked through a list of grievances regarding the Post's coverage of him and his administration— This dinner had been a state secret up until the writing of this book. I'm just wondering what that meeting revealed to you about the paper's relationship with the administration and really your ability to do your job. Well, it was a meeting that our publisher, uh, Fred Ryan, had sought. He thought it was a good idea for the senior executives at The Post to uh, meet with the new president of the United States. Uh, He felt that Jeff Bezos should be part of that meeting. I was quite nervous about the meeting because I thought that uh, Trump would interpret Bezos' presence as indicating that he actually influenced our news coverage. And the reality was that he did not get involved in our news coverage at all. But I think that... um, Trump did interpret that meeting as uh, meaning that Bezos was involved in the news coverage. He had held him responsible for our coverage up to that date. Our coverage had been very aggressive. Uh, Trump had uh, disliked it intensely. He had criticized the Post, and then he started attacking Jeff Bezos. And I think Trump saw this as an opportunity to lean on Bezos. And, uh, you know, I was sitting next to Trump uh, on his left side, Uh, Trump was speaking almost entirely directly to Bezos, who was across the table, Mm. and he was constantly criticizing our coverage, um, suggesting that we had not paid attention to his achievements, that we had been unfair to him, and every time he would make a point like that, he would elbow me. 
Uh, he, it's not like he was speaking to me directly, but um, the message was being sent that he saw Bezos as the person who either had been involved in our coverage or, in his view, should be involved in the coverage to make it more favorable to himself. Not only did he elbow you, though, you'd later receive calls directly from him. And this is, I mean, this is highly unusual, right, for the president of the United States to call a news editor on his cell phone. What kinds of things did you two talk about? Well, he did all the talking, actually. Um, I hardly said a word. Um, the first time he called to um, to criticize the story by two of our White House correspondents, uh, he said that he had been portrayed as a child. And then he said uh, words that I never expected a president of the United States to utter. And that was, uh, he said, I am not a child. And I thought that was quite a strange uh, comment to make. And then he called a second time to criticize yet another story. Uh, and he just went on at length um, ragging on the post. Uh, and, uh, and then he said, uh, this is because of Amazon. Amazon is influencing the coverage. This is because of Jeff Bezos. And I was indignant at hearing that. I, mean, I know that he had said that throughout the campaign and in the early months of his presidency. But for him to say that to me directly when it was so patently false, I was uh, outraged. And I finally talked back. And I said, uh, that's not true, and you know it's not true. And, uh, and then he broke out in profanities, uh, and uh, he called us a hate machine. He said that the Post was a big, fat lie, that this was all because of Bezos. Um, and, you know, ultimately I just said I appreciated him calling and giving me his perspective, and uh, ultimately the phone call ended as you write in the book, you did what every journalist would do in that situation. You wrote notes on the actual phone calls. But I'm just thinking about the role of an executive editor. So that's basically to guide editorial coverage and direction, which means you have to be pretty diplomatic despite these unusual occurrences, despite what you had just experienced. Was was that a challenge when it was clear, as you write in the book, that Donald Trump had the makings of an autocrat? Well, I think all journalists need to be in control of their emotions, and certainly the editor of a publication like the Washington Post should be in, in control of his emotions, and I always tried to do that. I wasn't there to get into an argument with the president of the United States. I was there to hear what he had to say. I was certainly will, obviously willing to take his call and to listen to any concerns that he had. Uh, and by the way, he did call Bezos himself first thing the next mm. morning after that White House meeting. He called him and, and said that, uh, I don't know if you get involved in coverage, but I'm sure you do. Uh, he urged them to make it more fair. And Bezos uh, told him that he doesn't get involved in coverage and that if he did, he would regret it the rest of his life. And then uh, Trump said, uh, well, if there's anything you need, uh, just give me a call. Basically an invitation to Bezos to ask for a favor. Um, and Bezos never did that. He never asked for any favors. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. But um, Trump felt that he was either involved in the critical coverage or that he certainly should be involved in making the coverage more favorable to Donald Trump himself. You know, I was thinking how much of a possible advantage it was. I'm thinking all of you, Bezos, Trump, um, and you, you, you're all in a way um, at the time were political outsiders. I mean, you started at The Post. You were a seasoned journalist and editor, of course, but you were not a political insider. How much do you think that was an advantage for you? Well, I think it's been an advantage throughout my entire career that I've been uh, an outsider. It certainly helped when I went to Boston. 
and um, and it helped when we decided to launch uh, an investigation of sexual abuse within the archdiocese and of uh, within the Catholic Church overall. The Globe had not done a, a big investigation of that at that point. But my view was that it's just an important story. It's, it's core to our mission to hold powerful institutions to account. And uh, we had an obligation to uh, our readers and to survivors uh, to take a look at their allegations that the church was aware of this abuse and had continually reassigned priests from parish to parish without notifying anybody. Uh, essentially a cover-up that had gone on for almost half a century and uh, so, you know, when I got to Washington, I didn't have any attachments there either. I had not worked in Washington except, you know, for occasional assignments uh, as a reporter at one time. Um, and I wasn't attached to any politician. I was actually quite skeptical of, of Washington. And, and I, I did feel that many people in Washington lived within their own bubble. And uh, so I felt completely independent of any interest there. And, and I always have been. Shortly after Trump became president, the Post affixed the words democracy dies in darkness under the nameplate. And you were initially not excited about this title. How come? I was a little skeptical of this simply because uh, it's not customary to have death and darkness in a motto. I don't think many marketers would say that's a really good idea. Uh, We tried other things. We tried using the word light in various ways, but it sounded very self-aggrandizing and it sounded uh, a little cultish, actually. And so... um, um, The lighter terms, the the lighter lighter ideas. Right, shedding light or things like that, bringing light. It sounded all very weird. And so... Bezos ultimately said, let's use this, which had been something that Bob Woodward, you know, the, the famed, famed investigative Washington reporter Post for the Washington Post had been had been saying for many years. Uh, and so we adopted it. But I, w- I mean, my view was fine. He settled the matter. Let's let's stop talking about it. But um, I was nervous that it was a little, well, dark, <laughs> actually quite yeah. dark. Um, but I didn't have anything better. And we certainly didn't have anything that... Um, well, I, there were some that I thought could be good, but um, like, yeah. uh, well, there was one that had been a phrase that had been used by uh, a photographer for the Post who uh, sadly passed away in covering the Ebola crisis in Africa, Michael Seal, and he said, uh, the story must be told. And I thought those were very powerful words and that that could work. But um, we went with Democracy Dies in Darkness, and it was an immediate phenomenon. I mean, people just mm-hmm. – uh, so many people embraced it, although Trump criticized it. His allies uh, assailed it as being an attack on Trump and being targeted at Trump, which it never was. And, you know, that motto or mission statement, as Bezos liked to call it, um, is still affixed to every product of the Washington Post. Uh, it didn't go away with uh, when Trump left the White House. You are rightly still angered by the death of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who was um, who was murdered in 2018 by agents of Saudi Arabia, and you tie his killing to Trump's anti-press posturing. Can you say more about what you mean by this? Uh, I mean, I think in the United States, we've become accustomed to presidents, even if they're critical of the press, uh, basically supporting the idea of a free and independent press, of understanding what our role is in society, the the very core mission of uh, holding government to account. Uh, I mean, look, that's the origin of the First Amendment. When James Madison crafted the First Amendment, um, principal crafter of the First Amendment, uh, he talked about freely examining public characters and, um, um, and, and all of that. And so that is 
holding government officials to uh, public characters and measures is what he said. And that's holding uh, politicians, government officials, and their policies to account and really examining them. That's why we have a First Amendment. That's what the founders intended. Uh, so uh, I don't think Trump respected that at all. Um, and his attacks on the press were a sign to uh, officials, to rulers elsewhere in the world, that they could go after the press in a way that they hadn't before. The United, uh, this country had always been uh, supportive of uh, a free press elsewhere in the world, and um, and so it was clear that Trump was could couldn't could not have cared less. Uh, he wasn't going to do anything to protect journalists elsewhere in the world, uh, not even American journalists. And um, and that was a terrible signal, I think, to send to autocrats elsewhere in the world who were determined to suppress uh, independent journalism in their own in their own countries. And in the case of uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, I think it was a sign that, uh, you know, that that Saudi Arabia interpreted is they could do whatever they wanted to uh, and they were not going to incur the ire of the president of the United States. Okay, Marty, let's get into the sale of the post to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos in 2013. The Graham family, who had owned the Washington Post for eight decades, sold the paper to Bezos soon after you arrived. In the beginning, you were wary. You wondered why Bezos, first of all, was interested in a struggling paper. But you came to see the sale to Bezos as a sign of hope. Yeah, I did. I mean, we were in the position of managing decline at the Post. Uh, that's what a lot of uh, news organizations were doing at that time, particularly ones like the Post, which at that time was very much focused on its uh, region, uh, the Washington metro area. And um, and so, you know, I felt like, well, here's a guy who is not known for managing decline. Here's a guy who really believes in growth. Uh, and we could use that. Um, uh, that that spirit, also that we could use some fresh ideas in our business. I mean, our business had really suffered for a lack of fresh ideas. In fact, that's why the Graham family sold the post in the first place. They had completely run dry on ideas uh, for turning it around and for, for developing a model of sustainability. And um, Bezos obviously knows technology extremely well. And importantly, in my view, he also understands com- consumer behavior. Um, and uh, he certainly has the resources to invest uh, for the kind of transition in, in a digital era that we that we needed to make. Um, and so he could finance new initiatives. So I was very hopeful. I thought it it, it could be a really good thing for the post. Uh, was li- and might well be, uh, but I didn't know if it was going to be a good thing for me uh, because the typical equation is uh, new owner, new editor. Um, and right. Uh, right. I was fully <laughs> yes. anticipating that I would. I would be out on the street uh, and have to find something else to do with my life. Uh, but that did not right. happen. Right. It did not happen. Um, he saw you for your skill, for your knowledge, your experience, and you stayed in that post. Um, as you mentioned, the the post, like journalism at large, needed fresh thinking, some fruitful changes. You hired more journalists who grew up in the internet age. You did away with holding on to this old idea that what was published online had to also be published in the print edition. Um, Your reporters began writing in this very informal style, more like how people actually talk. I'm just wondering, was that hard for you as a trained news person in the beginning to let go of the quote-unquote standard? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I've been often been described as the ultimate old school journalist, but I don't think that's an yeah. accurate description, frankly. Um, 
I'm old school when it comes to our values. Uh, I think we need to stick to the core values that we've had in this business for a very long time. Um, and uh, uh, But in terms of how we disseminate information, I think that that has to change. I mean, I certainly recognized that before I came to the post. Um, uh, I was at the Boston Globe when uh, high-speed broadband uh, really became more common in our society. The internet was a bigger factor. Twitter was founded. Um, uh, Facebook was founded. Uh, uh, the iPhone was introduced. All of that, very disruptive period um, that dramatic has dramatically affected our business, no question about it. Uh, so I was aware of that. But I also saw that um, some people who were really succeeding um, in, on the internet, uh, in media, uh, because they had adopted a more informal style. They were still talking about very complicated subjects, but um, but they were writing about them in a way that was much more accessible, That, as if you were speaking to a family member or a friend about a complicated subject, you, weren't, you were not writing about it in the f- traditional formalized style that we had uh, used in newspapers for a long time. We had one of those at, our, at, at the Post who was sort of emblematic of it, Ezra Klein, uh, who had been a real success and was producing a disproportionate amount of uh, traffic. Uh, and was writing about very complicated subjects, particularly healthcare um, and other big, important policy issues, but writing about them in a very accessible style, using a lot of graphics, um, and basically have a conver- having a conversation with readers as opposed to um, kind of instructing them in this sort of formal style that we typically had in the newspaper business. So I did learn from that for sure. And talking about Ezra Klein's reporting, I heard that word traffic in there. That is something that, as an editor previously, you really didn't have to think about. Well, more specifically, metrics. That was something that Bezos brought in in a very intentional way that you were looking at on a regular basis. What's working? What is not working? And how to shift and pivot based on that? Yeah, he did. He's into metrics. Uh, I mean, he said explicitly that uh, you really can't run a business without metrics, and I understand that totally. Um, Some of the early metrics were ones that I was not very uh, pleased with. Um, We had talked about, I think he smartly suggested that we have an overnight team, uh, but I think the idea for the overnight team was to essentially be involved in what's called aggregation, is looking at other people's coverage and summarizing it and then turning that around into a story of our own uh, without a lot of original reporting, if any, for that matter. Uh, and his, one of his ideas that we should turn those stories around in 15 minutes and that they should be measured. Uh, and these people uh. would work overnight, you know, from about 10 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I thought that was just completely unworkable. Um, we weren't going to be able to hire anybody of any caliber for a posi- position like that. It's, there was no level of satisfaction in doing that kind of work. Uh, and uh, it would just be a, it would basically be factory-type production of so-called content, not real journalism, what I would, I would view as journalism. And so we did create the overnight team, uh, and we, uh, but we took a different approach. Um, and we wrote uh, substantive stories. They were very well written, uh, very sharply edited, um, smartly conceived, with good headlines. Uh, and they produced it actually produced a disproportionate amount of traffic for us, um, high readership levels, and um, and it worked. And so ultimately, um, uh, although occasionally somebody would bring up the. 15-minute metric. I brushed that off. Uh, I said I wasn't going to. Uh, I wasn't going to do that. And and by the way, we were already having tremendous success at night. 
not doing that, taking a totally different approach. Um, uh, the motto for that team, uh, that which produced something called Morning Mix, uh, was called Second Day Stories uh, Today, uh, which was basically you know looking ahead to what what is the story that people will be interested in tomorrow. Um, is there a trend here that we need to highlight? Is there a person here we need to highlight? Is there a, um, a way of thinking that's uh, taken root that we need to highlight? You name it. There, there are a lot of different ways you could look at it. And uh, is there a behind-the-scenes story that we need to tell um, and uh, try to jump ahead of the coverage of by other news media outlets and say, let's just jump out ahead of them. And so that's what we did. And it was tremendously successful. Our guest today is Marty Barron, longtime newspaper editor and author of the new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Today we're talking with Marty Barron, longtime journalist and newspaper editor. His new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post, chronicles his role as the executive editor at The Post during the sale of the paper to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. And during coverage of some of the biggest stories of our time, from the National Security Administration document leak to the election of former President Donald Trump and the pandemic. The Post won several Pulitzer Prize awards during Barron's tenure. He retired in 2021. Early in his career, Barron also ran the newsrooms of the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe. Barron's role in launching the investigation of the Catholic Church's cover-up of sexual abuse by clergy was portrayed in the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight. After we recorded the interview, news broke that the Washington Post plans to cut about 240 jobs across the organization. You know, one thing that wasn't received well and... um that you both you and Bezos somewhat agree on is the opposition to unions. You historically have not been a fan of unions for newsrooms. Why is that? Well, I don't oppose unions. I actually um, embrace unions. Uh, I think they have an incredibly important role to play in American society in terms of asking for better, uh, better wages and better uh, benefits. My problem with newsroom unions has been that they seem to want to co-manage the newsroom. They also have been very protective of what I consider bad behavior by certain staffers, uh, as, as if uh, no form of behavior is, justifies uh, discipline. Uh, I also feel that unions have not unions in newsrooms have 
really demonstrated willful ignorance of what it takes to have a sustainable business model in a, in a, in a media, media environment, uh, uh, in the kind of media environment that exists today. And, um, and I think that it's, uh, it's uh, obligatory on the part of all of us who work in this industry to recognize there's, there's an industry that has been tremendously disrupted, will continue to be disrupted, uh, that we need to be flexible in how we use the resources on the staff, that we will launch initiatives that some of which will work, but others that won't work. And that if we, uh, if things are not working, we need to discontinue them. And that of course can affect people's jobs, uh, I'm sensitive to, you know, layoffs and things like that. I mean, I've had to do really painful uh, layoffs over the course of my career. I mean, when I was in Boston, I had to, I had to lay off um, uh, or reduce the staffing, I should say, by about 40% in my entire 11 and a half wow. years at the, at, the, at the Boston Globe. Uh, so my interest is really saying how, in saying how do we preserve jobs? How do we really preserve jobs uh, is – we preserve jobs by coming up with a sustainable business model. That's how we will preserve jobs and how we will add more jobs. And so I think that, you know, newsroom unions need to better understand uh, what's required in a media environment, uh, the sort of media environment that exists today. And I think they've been very resistant to the kinds of changes. Uh, I say in the book that in newsrooms, there's always been a gravitational pull to what used to be as opposed to what needs to be. And I firmly believe that. Almost what I hear from you is what could be perceived as kind of a third way. I mean, I think how we have been looking at it when it comes to newsrooms is no union, union. You're actually saying let's take a look at the business model itself and um, use that as a, as a way to overhaul and rethink the way that we're using people in a way that also protects them in their jobs. Yeah. I look, I mean, I th- look, media in this country um, is in a state of crisis. Uh, I think we all have to work together to figure out how to make sure that we have uh, a strong industry and, and a strong profession. And uh, that requires a level of cooperation and not only conflict, not only confrontation. And I very much believe in that. And I would like to see us work in that direction. And I think that's going to be necessary. As you mentioned, one of the first major stories when you started at the the Post was uh, Edward Snowden's revelations of government surveillance. And you write that you spent the night before publication of those leaked documents that he provided by reading the Espionage Act of 1917. How much fear did you have that you were possibly putting the paper at risk by publishing those documents? I'm not sure I'd use the word fear, but uh, concern I certainly had. Um, Look, they were the most classified documents in the U.S. government. We would be publishing them not that long, really, after 9-11. You know, I I saw what could happen. I saw uh, the two planes went out of Logan Airport, and those were the two planes that hit the World Trade Center Tower. I understood the vulnerability of this country to terrorism. I didn't want to be necessarily party to doing anything that would endanger the lives of ordinary people and the security of the country. On the other hand, there was a surveillance regime in this country that had been put in place by the intelligence community. It uh, sucked up an enormous amount of information about uh, large numbers of uh, Americans and, of course, citizens overseas as well. And so, you know, I had to weigh those things. And there, look, there were potentially significant penalties against uh, the Post uh, if it published those documents the institution could be fined. Journalists there could be imprisoned. The executives uh, who oversaw those journalists could be imprisoned as well. Uh, so 
I needed to really think about it. It's not you don't make a snap decision on those sorts of things. Um, I mean, I had indicated that we would move ahead with the story, but I used the evening to sort of think it through again and um, read the Espionage Act and weigh all of the considerations, and then we decided to go ahead. I, I felt that uh, there was a real important public policy issue here. Look, government has enormous power. Uh, and when it has the power of surveillance, uh, and if it uses that power to uh, extract information, personal information, communications of uh, Americans without proper boundaries, then uh, you've got a real problem. Uh, and the question in my mind is if we just let this go ahead and this uh, surveillance continues to expand and deepen, what does that mean for uh, the kind of government we have? What does it mean if somebody in power or somebody in the White House decides to use that information for malicious purposes? And so I made the decision to proceed, and we went ahead and published the information in those documents. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Marty Barron, former executive editor of The Washington Post. He's written a new book about his tenure at the paper and his nearly 50-year career in journalism called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven winners' color choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life? Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing. But an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. I want to talk about something else that you write uh, extensively in the book about, um, and that is the racial reckoning that happened after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Legacy newsrooms are notoriously racially homogenous, especially at the leadership level. And the Post had its own racial reckoning during that time period. You write that you failed to acknowledge the deep pain felt by the Post's black journalists and that one of your most serious errors during your time there was that. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, Look, I mean, I think the killing of George Floyd affected uh, black journalists and black Americans generally in a way that other incidents of police abuse and killings uh, had not. That came as a surprise to me. I just didn't have 
my finger on the pulse of that, really, uh, which in a way is sort of emblematic of the problem that people were trying to highlight subsequent to that, which was that if we had had more black Americans in leadership positions, they probably would have been able to alert me to that feeling of anger and grievance and uh, hurt that it was different this time. And uh, I didn't have a sense of that. You know, we had done a really good job of covering uh, the protests, of the, which were intense in the nation's capital, of course. Uh, and I sent out a note to the staff to congratulate people on that coverage. But in my note of congratulations and thanks and real gratitude and genuine gratitude, I failed to acknowledge the hurt that was felt by black Americans and, and black journalists on our staff. And I was uh, criticized for that. And uh, that's sort of how I became aware of uh, how this incident, this killing was different from uh, previous ones. And so, you know, as in many other news organizations, uh, there was a demand for action to do more, to have more diversity in the leadership of the post. Overall on the staff, we had, you know, uh, pretty good diversity numbers. Uh, we had actually improved the overall diversity of the staff during my time there. But not really in leadership, uh, and certainly in, my, in the most senior ranks, it wasn't very diverse at all. And people noted that, and they were upset over that, and they wanted that to change. They didn't want to hear just a promise of change. They wanted to see the change immediately. Well, you did something that was really um, really interesting. You, you appointed post-veteran Kevin Merida as managing editor. He's a black journalist who had been at the Post for 20 years by that time. You, when he notified you that he was leaving for ESPN, you privately told him that you were actually willing to retire early if he stayed with the goal of him being your successor. It didn't work. He still left. But why did you feel it was important for you to do that? Well, Kevin's a great journalist. He's an incredibly talented writer, really great at conceptualizing stories, uh, had a great bond with the staff at The Post. Um, a month after I was at the Post, uh, I had to name a, a new managing editor to be responsible for our news coverage, and um, it was my first personnel decision, actually, and I named Kevin. You know, I didn't know him super well at that point because I'd only been at the Post for a short period of time, but what I knew of him was really great. And it was a good compliment to me as well. Um, it would help me see, hear of stories that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. So for all those reasons, I, I named him my managing editor, and um, he was there. He was in that position for several years, but then he received an offer from ESPN um, that was a very good offer, um, and I was very eager to have him stay at the Post. Uh, and I, I didn't need to, you know, I'd had a long career as the top editor of uh, three different publications. Um, I could stay another couple of years, and then I felt like it would be a really good and constructive thing for for. Um, for Kevin to be the executive editor of the Washington Post. You know, I just still, I, I think it's it's kind of remarkable to even bring that up as an idea, knowing that for decades there have been these initiatives to build diversity within newsrooms and more broadly in other industries too. Um, but there always seems to be at some point that those initiatives don't actually move the needle in a way that, that feels substantive. And I'm just wondering, do you think more high-level people in journalism and more broadly in other industries need to assess whether to do this? I mean, you were basically saying, I've had a long career. I could step aside saying that in this moment, you may actually be the person that's needed in this role. 
I felt that in that, in that circumstance that um, uh, he would be a great leader for the post. Uh, I had already had a long career. I uh, had accomplished a lot, I felt, and um, <laughs> I was pretty tired, too, uh, having done this for such a long period of time. <laughs> and um, yeah. and I think it would be it would have been great for the Post. It was time. I mean, I think that uh, at, at that moment, I thought that uh, it would have been fantastic. Social media, especially during your last years, provided a major test in your leadership in in many different ways. Um, But I'll just ask you about one particular incident that made headlines. In 2020, you criticized a Post reporter who sent a tweet about the Kobe Bryant sexual assault after Bryant's death. And that reporter, whose name was Felicia Somnez, uh, was later suspended. The Washington Post Guild criticized that move, and she was later reinstated. Um, And then there were some more actions that happened after that. But you issued a three-page statement, but did not apologize for your initial decision. Do you still stand behind your decision? Uh, Yes, I do. She was put on administrative leave with pay, by the way. Um, So I think it's important to Uh, think through some of the basics of our profession when thinking about this. Uh, And that is, why do we have editors and why do we have editing? So um, editors are responsible for the organizing and the execution of our journalism. And uh, to do that, they work with reporters. They decide which reporters work on stories uh, based on a variety of factors, including their experience, their expertise, uh, their judgment. Um, And then they pursue journalism with the um, informed by the established standards of the organization. These standards have uh, been developed over a long period of time, um, and we hope that we produce journalism that lives up to those, uh, those established standards. Uh, and when those reporters and the editors and editors, they encounter new circumstances, particularly sensitive, really sensitive stories, uh, as was the case with uh, the death of Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven other individuals, um, uh, then um, they discuss it among themselves. They, they may consult with other people. They may consult with the executive editor about what's the best way to approach things. So uh, all of those established standards sort of blow up. Um, uh, they're obliterated when any person on the staff can decide to take that story in his or her own, own hands uh, and say whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, um, and that sort of thing. And so... Um, you know, we would not, as an institution, just put out a tweet saying that uh, Kobe Bryant is a rapist. Uh, we would we would look at our coverage and say, okay, when do we report that? When? How do we report that? In what kind of context do we report that? And of course, we were going to report that because we always report uh, uh, instance, instances of dishonor, uh, real dishonor and disgrace. Uh, in the history of uh, well-known people who, who die. We always do that in our obituaries. It's standard, standard policy. Uh, but this happened uh, 38 minutes after um, the death of Kobe Bryant was confirmed, the death of his 13-year-old daughter, the death of seven other individuals. Um, and so uh, our view is that the coverage should have been handled by the people we assigned to that coverage. We're coming up on uh, another presidential election. We've learned a lot from the last two. One thing I'm thinking about is, do you ever worry that for all of Trump's troubled relationships with the media, 
covering him does bring in money, and that is intoxicating for a business that is struggling. I'm just thinking about the upcoming coverage of the presidential election, and what are some of the things that you're thinking about? Uh, You're now on the other side of it, retired, looking at the coverage. Yeah. uh, I mean, look, I think we need to cover uh, Trump and all politicians aggressively. Um, With regard to Trump himself, I mean, I think it's really important that we uh, not just provide a platform for whatever it is he wants to say, uh, a lot of which is outright false, uh, but that we actually take a really hard look at what kind of government would he put into place? Uh, Who would he appoint to uh, uh, cabinet positions? Uh, Who would he appoint to head up regulatory agencies? What would his agenda be on the first day in office and and every day thereafter? Uh, I mean, we can fully expect, because he's indicated so, that uh, this will be a a, a government of vengeance. Uh, He will be targeting the Department of Justice. He will be targeting the, the FBI. He will be going after the courts in some fashion. He certainly will be going after the press more aggressively than he has before. There are, he's, he's talked about using uh, military forces to suppress totally legitimate protests in this country. Um, uh, he's, talk, he's talked about a lot of things. And uh, what we really need to do is dedicate full resources to uh, telling the public uh, informing the public of what kind of government he expects to have. Um, there are plans. They are making plans uh, for what they will do if they were to come back into office. And uh, we need to report on that aggressively, not because there's commercial advantage in it, but because th- the future of the country, the future of a democracy depends on who we have in the White House. And um, that's our obligation. That's core to our mission. Marty Barron, thank you so much for this conversation and for your book. Thank you very much for having me. Marty Barron is the author of Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. Coming up, John Powers reviews two books by one of his favorite writers, Helen Gardner. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances, Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. When Helen Garner published her first novel, Monkey Grip, in 1977, it made her a literary sensation in her native Australia. 
She's been a famous writer there ever since. The American publisher Pantheon has begun releasing her most popular books, starting with her 1984 novel, The Children's Bach, and her 2014 true crime book, This House of Grief. Our critic at large, John Powers, says that Garner is one of his favorite writers and that these books offer the ideal introduction to a woman who's forever grappling with the hard stuff of life. I sometimes think that great writers come in two types. The first show very little interest in the everyday world of people and events. A perfect example is the just-minted Nobel laureate, the Norwegian Jun Fosse, whose haunting new novella, A Shining, feels otherworldly. A nameless man heads into a cold, mysterious forest and has a religious experience. In the other group, you find writers who dive headlong into our shared world of romance and pettiness, family and political squabbling. You get all this and more in the work of Helen Garner, the Australian novelist, journalist, diarist, and screenwriter. At age 80, she occupies the galvanizing spot in her culture once held in America by the likes of Mary McCarthy, Joan Didion, and Susan Sontag. Steeped in her messy personal experience of the counterculture and the gender wars, Garner's books win big prizes, kickstart controversies, and say things other people rarely dare. Yet when I mention her name here, almost nobody has even heard of her. In hopes of correcting this, Pantheon has begun releasing several of Garner's books, starting with perhaps her two most widely admired works. Her short 1984 novel, The Children's Bach, and This House of Grief, her elegiac 2014 book about a nation-transfixing murder that I think superior to Truman Capote's dodgy, preeningly literary, In Cold Blood. The more immediately gripping of the two is the latter. This House of Grief follows the years-long judicial prosecution of Robert Farquharson, a floundering laborer who, on their Father's Day in 2005, drove his car off an overpass into water, killing the three sons he'd had with his recently estranged wife. He insisted it wasn't a deliberate crime, and his ex believed him. Yet the police investigation decided it was murder. Sitting in the courtroom day after day, Garner charts the ebb and flow of a sometimes boring, sometimes exciting process, to which she responds with the shifting sympathies of a theater-goer. If she often feels for the accused, who strikes her as little more than a lost man-child, she is skeptical of the defense's claim that he couldn't have killed his sons because he loved them. There it was again, she writes, the sentimental fantasy of love as simple benevolence, a tranquil, sunlit region in which we are safe from our own destructive urges. Tinged with mourning, the book leaves us wondering what justice might mean in a tragedy where everyone winds up a victim. Life is less bleak but no less tricky in The Children's Bach, a generational saga that unfolds like a version of The Big Chill written by Virginia Woolf. Set during the disillusioned aftermath of the counterculture, it centers on a couple, Dexter and Athena, whose cozy, vaguely bohemian life wobbles when his spiky college friend Elizabeth turns up. She introduces them to an alienated teenage girl and a womanizing musician, and guides them to a punkish underground scene that unleashes fears and yearnings that were lurking there all along. In the end, this opalescent masterpiece is less a plotted story than a series of resonantly emblematic moments that catch the essence of the characters as they chase the secret of happiness. Although different in style and tone, both books reveal Garner's great gift, an ability to cut to the heart of things, 
She's not out to wow us with a fancy style. Rather, her elegantly direct prose is always wrestling with that essential feminist concern, the politics of domestic life. And she's not afraid to be thorny. In her bracingly unsentimental novel, The Spare Room, the autobiographical heroine looks after a friend with terminal cancer and is flooded with resentment at the dying woman's delusions and narcissism. This isn't to say that Garner's work is dark or nasty. Crackling with curiosity and unpredictability, she embraces the many-sidedness of life, defending suburbia, expressing admiration for the skills of working-class blokes, even when they're sexists, pondering the joys of old age, and admitting that, like me, her heart melts when she hears the theme music to the TV series Midnight Diner. The house of her imagination sets aside nice big rooms for love and pleasure and forgiveness. Near the end of the children's Bach, the womanizing musician tells Athena how to write a song. You have to steer a line, he says, between what you understand and what you don't. He could well be describing what makes Garner's work so compelling. Reading her, I'm always inspired that a writer who already knows so much of life never stops pushing herself into unknown territory. Critic at Large John Powers reviewed two books by the Australian writer Helen Garner, now published in the U.S. by Pantheon. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air and subscribe to the Fresh Air newsletter. You'll get behind-the-scenes stories and recommendations written by our Fresh Air staff. You can subscribe at whyy.org slash freshair. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Whether you're planning a weekend away or an international adventure, all trips annual travel insurance can protect every trip you take for the next 365 days. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.